Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Megillah, daf vav, page six. I'm actually going to begin at the very end of the previous daf. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Ki Havayna Talia Amina Milta Dishailna Lasavia. As you can hear, we're in Aramaic. Um, there's a whole discussion in the previous daf about Tiberia, the city of T- Tiberias. And because of that, Rabbi Yochanan says, he, he has a story about how when he was a child, Kevin Natalia, when he was a child, he said something that he then later, when he was an adult, um, asked the elders about. All of this is the Aramaic, and it goes on. on now we're on the top of Ardaf. And he found that what they had to say was in accord with what he had already thought. Isn't that nice from Now, it's not clear to me at all whether the discussion that follows, oh no, I take it back. Um, let, just stay, stay, stick with me for another two minutes, a minute and a half, and we'll talk about what it is that Rabbi Yochanan was really talking about. Specifically, Hamat, he says, is Tiberius, is Ti- Tiberius, right? The place Hamat, which is listed, discussed, right? In the, in, I guess, in Sifur Chazal to begin with. And then, of course, the question is, why was it called Hamat? Alshum Chamei Tiberia, because of the hot springs of Tiberia, that's called Chamei, the, from the word Cham, meaning hot, right? The hot springs of Tiberia are in Tiberia, so they would just call it essentially like the hot springs or the hot place, as opposed to giving its full name. Then he says he, his position was that Rakat, Zotzipori, he goes on to say Rakat is a place of Tzipori. Again, these are names that are mentioned. They're mentioned also in the Tanakh, and the question is, how do they line up I'm sorry, I said before Sifrut Chazal. I meant the, the literature of the of the Bible, right? The how do they line up with these real life places that they knew, right? So Rakat is Sipori, Velamini Krashmo Rakat. Why was it called Rakat? It says Mishum de Medalia Kirakta de Nahara. It was raised above the areas around the, the, the towns and or the land rather around the town, like the Rakta, the bank of a river. Kineret zo ginosar. He says the kineret was ginosar. What's ginosar? Velamini krashma kineret. Why does it have the name kineret if it's ginosar? The mitke peira kekalia de kinara, kinare. Because its fruit are sweet like the sound of a harp, meaning a kinor. So this should not be confused with the kineret, right? The, the, the lake of the kineret. Although when I first read it, I certainly thought that that was what we were talking about. And I'm a little... I'm not sure that it's completely separate, separated. Um, okay. So then that's already, that's all the generation of Rabbi Yochanan. And now we have follow-up from the following generation. Is there anybody who says that Rakat is not Tveria? Because what happens? Okay. Isn't it true, says the Gemara? Is it true that when a great man dies here, here meaning Rav is in Babylonia, Hatam Safdi Lehachi, that they lament, that they, they eulogize there, meaning there in Tiveria, Tiveria where which for time was, you know, there's a strong rabbinic population there. Gadolhu Besheshach Besham Lo Brakat. So he says, he was great in Sheshach, meaning this is a reference to Babylonia, and he had a name, Sham, um, 
V'shem lo barakat. He had a name in rakat, meaning that's how you know that this is the person who has passed away is in fact that great of a person that he was, you know, known to be great in Babylonia and also in rakat, meaning Tiveria, that he's got an identity amongst both Jewish populations. And then when they would, likewise, when they would have um, a death of somebody really important there, there meaning in Tiveria, then they would also, you know, eulogize, they would lament as follows. That the, it would say, you, the people who love the remnants, the Sridim, the remnants of the Jewish people, it doesn't say literally the Jewish people, but that's what it means. Residents of Rakat, meaning those of you who live in this area, in the land of Israel, go out and receive the dead Omek from the deep, meaning those low-lying lands that are, are Babylonia. The land of Babylonia is lower um, than the land of Israel. And for those of you who are recently on our Tanitium, you would see that in the maps that we saw, the weather maps, of how the rain shelf, if that's what it's called, the rain shelf demonstrates that the like in Jerusalem it's much higher, and really the land of Israel as a whole is higher than some of these other Middle Eastern or Gulf countries where the land is much lower, um, altitudinally, if that's a word. Okay, so for example, the Gemara gives us an example: when Rabbi Zera, whom we all have encountered before, right? This is a prominent Zamora. When Rabbi Zera died. They would open. They opened his eulogy, and they said, meaning the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar is Babylonia, which is where he was born. Right? It says that that's the land that bore him, that gave birth to him. And then the land of the deer, Eretz Svi, the land of the deer is the land of Israel where he had moved and he lived there as an, an adult. That's where he became famous and important. And, you know, raised her delights. I Meaning this is, he had the best of both in this regard. You know, that's that's the eulogy, right? The idea that he came, he had real background in both places. And then this is the lament, woe to her, said Rakat, meaning Tiveria, because she has lost her 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 beloved instrument, right? Meaning her beloved instrument being Rabbi Zera himself. Meaning, according to this, Rav is saying, hello, all of these cases are talking about Rakat as Tiveria. Like, what's the debate here? So that seems to be established. Ela Amaraba, Hamadzo Gerar. But rather, he's arguing on Rabbi Yochanan that Hamad is not Tiveria. I'm sorry, Hamad is not, right. I'm sorry, let me take a step back. The point is that he's saying that Rakat is Tiveria, not Tsipori which is argues really against Rabbi Yochanan. Because Rabbi Yochanan said that Hamat is Tiveria and Rakat is Tsipori. And then Rava comes and says, wait, everybody says, and he gives all the examples, that Rakat is Tiveria, not Tsipori. So Rava says, Hamat is Gerar, and Rakat is Tiveria. So he's got a different location that he can identify Hamat to be, namely the hot springs of Gerar, not the hot springs of Tiveria, and the hot springs of Gerar, by the way, are not located all that far from Tiveria. I'm sorry. So again, everybody kind of, he, he accepts the idea that Kinar is Ginosar and goes back to ask why was Tiveria called Rakat? 
right? Because Rabbi Yochanan, who had a different approach, isn't going to answer that, right? It's a really beautiful description. It says, even the, the, the lowest of the low, even the empty ones in Tveria were themselves filled with mitzvot like a, a rimon. Meaning, think about the, how righteous the, the, the full ones were, as if this is the, defi- the description of those who were empty. So Rabbi Yirmi has a different approach. He says, really, Rakat was the real name. And then it came to be called Tavaria. Why? Because it sat Tabur, the very center of the land of Israel. And Rava Amar, Rakat Shema, Velamak Nikrashma, Tavaria, Shetova Riyata. Rava says that really Rakat is the name. And why was it the place called Tavaria? Because it it looked good. It was a good appearance. And the word, of course, this is because of the words, right? Tovarieta. If you say it, you know what, 10 times fast, it'll blur into the word Tavaria. Um, I will just note that the place descriptions here, right? This identification of biblical places with known places to the to Chazal continues rather extensively. We've got Kitron, we've got um what else do we have here? Hmm. There's a whole, there's a lot of discussion over all these different places, and the whole description of the then the area of Zvulun, which is on the on the sea, and then eventually, here Dana, maybe you'll comment on this as well. Um, eventually, we get to a descri- description later in the Daf of Edom, and of course, some of the sharpness I would say in describing Edom here needs to be put into the context that Edom in the for everybody right in the time of Chazal the the idea is that Edom is the heir to Esav, on the one hand, meaning that's the biblical text. And then on the other side, it becomes the progenitor of Rome. So the moment you start talking about the Romans in the language of Edom, right, in this biblical terminology, then you have Chazal who are living under Rome or just slightly after the generations that were literally under Roman oppression. And of course, the descriptions that they're going to apply to Edom are going to be much sharper and much more um, kind of, I don't want to say gratuitous. I think that they're genuine, uh, but they're they are reflective of their own time, and there's no way to get around that. Meaning the fact that they are in their own time and under the Roman oppression, even or slightly thereafter, is still is very much in their description of who is who is Edom and what does it mean. Later, of course, it came to also mean not just Rome but also Christianity. But that's for a different day. Right. And, um, you know, I think that's really the context that we have to give it. I mean, they were really oppressed and tortured and their lives were made miserable by the Romans. So this isn't commenting on sort of like a theoretical enemy or an enemy from the past, the way that we read these stories today. You know, this would be Ke'ilu, you know, uh, thinking about, you know, sort of modern day. Like it's something that they experienced in real time. And so, you know, I think that's like an important historical context to give it to it. And I think talking about it in terms of Edom also allows them to speak about it in a way that's sort of like in code. It's like without sort of coming straight out about it, but thinking about it in terms of a context of, you know, how did our tradition, how did our text inform us that some of these things were actually going to happen and we knew this was going to happen which I think is also a theological way of sort of comforting themselves as well. Like this was sort of, sort of in a way all preordained. This is just who they are and it's just who we are. Um, yes, exactly. 
Yes. Um, all right. I'm going to jump ahead to the mission. It's a very long death. There's a lot to talk about here. So now we get into the question of what to do when we have two others. Now, notice the way this mission is set up. If we read the Megillah and Adar, you know, in, in Adar, and then the year and was then the no, year was intercalculated, we added a, a month. Now, remember, that doesn't happen today. So the mission is sort of describing it in the way that it normally would happen. They didn't know ahead that the year was going to be intercalculated, was going to, you know, be a Shanat Ibor. Corina Taba Adar Shani. So what do you have to do? You need to read the Megillah again on the second month. So the difference between, there's basically, you know, no difference between Adar, the first Adar and the second Adar in terms of any of the mitzvot that are done during the month, right? The differences are the reading of the Megillah and the distributing of the gifts to the poor. In other words, that would be done in the second Adar and not in the first Adar, right? You would have to make sure that you read the Megillah and that you distributed the gifts to the poor, that has to be done in the second Adar. Um, and so then the Gemara goes, makes an interesting comment. So it sort of wants to infer from this Mishnah that when it talks about the matter of the Torah portions, right, we know that there are two special sort of have Maftirs uh, uh, and then have Torahs that are read on the two Shabbatot before Purim. Right, Shkalim and Zachar Shkalim, right? If you did Masach uh, and with us, we read the mitzvah of donating that half shekel. Zachar, which is the portion about Amalek, which is related to Haman, because we say that Haman was part of Amalek. And then the two Shabbatot after Purim of Para, right? As a reminder, that's the Torah, that's the portion about Para Duma. It's sort of a reminder to tell people if you're Tame, you need to get ready for Pesach, which is coming. And then Hachodesh, which is the Parsha that of the first Rosh Chodesh that we consecrated, that we made, you know, that we were Makadesh, which was uh, Nisan. Um, And so that, in other words, what it's saying is, is that, you know, this and that are equal. Meaning if you read them in the first month, you're exempt from doing it in the second month. That's basically how you could read that Mishnah. Because what the Mishnah is basically saying is, is the only thing that has to be done again in the second month is that you must do, you must read the Megillah and you have to give Matanus Levionin. If you did that in the first month, it, it didn't fulfill what you needed to do. You have to do it again in the second Adar as well. But when it comes to the Parshiot, if you read them in the first month and then it became a Shanat Ibor, then you're fine. You don't have to read them again. So then the Gemara is going to quote a very lengthy Brisa to try to figure out who actually, you know, who's the author of this Mishnah, right? Mani Ma'inan, right? Lo Tanakama, below Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yossi, below Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel. Because it's trying to figure out who wrote this Mishnah. So it's going to quote this Brisa. The Brisa has three opinions. And it's basically saying this Brisa doesn't line up with any of the opinions in the Mishnah itself. Right? To Tanya. We learned it a Brisa. So it's the same setup. Right? We read the, it's the, the first Adar came. We read the Megillah. Then we added a second Adar. Korina Taba Adar Shani. We have to read the Megillah again on Adar Shani. So this is interesting. Here it says, right, that we have to do, uh, you know, uh, that the, the mitzvah that we do in the first one, right, we, we have to, um, they're practiced again, except for the reading of Megillah, meaning that if it's done in the first month, it's done. Um, but if you didn't do, you know, but, but Megillah, you need to repeat again. So 
Rabbi Eliezer says, no, you don't have to read it again. If you did it the first month, first Adar, you're good. You don't have to do it for the second month. Right? So, um, so, so he basically says, it's actually not the case. The mitzvahs have to be performed specifically in the second month, right? And, um, and therefore, um, but they, but everybody agrees, right? So in other words, all the mitzvot are done during the second one. They're not doing the first one. So all those mitzvot would need to be repeated again in the second Adar. But everybody agrees that all the prohibitions about giving eulogies or fasting, right, on the 14th and the 15th of Adar, that's kept in Adar Rishon and in Adar Shemi. So in both of them, you're going to um, do them. So now the Gemara is going to get, try to discuss this, analyze this brysa, um, a, a little bit more and try to figure out, can you say that this price goes according to the Tanakama? Can you say if this price goes according to Reverend Shimon ben Gamliel? Um, and, um, you know, finally, the Gemara says, Amar Rabbi Chia Bar Avin, Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Hilchatak Reverend Shimon ben Gamliel, Sha'amar Mishum Rabbi Yossi. That finally, and this is how we practice today, Rabbi Chia Bar Avin says, no, the Halakha is like Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, who said in the name of Rabbi Yossi, that basically everything has to only be done. It only counts if you did it in the second Adar. And then now they give an interesting understanding about why is this the case. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Ushnehem Mikra Echad Drashu, right? Both of them, Rabbi Shalom ben Gamliel and Rabbi Eliezer, son of Rabbi Yossi, they both interpret the verse, uh, the same verse differently, okay? Bechol Shana Ubeshana. So this is a verse from Esther chapter 9, verse 21. Right, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yosef, Sabar, B'chol Shana B'Shana, Ma Kol Shana B'Shana, Adur HaSamuch L'Shvat, Avkan Adur HaSamuch L'Shvat. So Rabbi Yosef, the son of Rabbi Yosef, right, who he said that basically you could do everything in the first Adar, right? So he basically says, because the Pasuk says in each and every year, what this teaches is that Purim has to be celebrated the same way every year. And even if it's a Shanat Ibor, just as every year Purim is celebrated in Adar that's next to a Shvat, so too it needs to be celebrated in Adar next to Shvat. So that's how Rabbi Eliezer gets to this opinion that it's the first Adar that counts, and that's where you do all the mitzvot. But Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel Safar, Bechol Shana Vishana, Makol Shana Vishana, Adar HaSamuch Nisan, Avkan Adar HaSamuch Nisan. So he holds the opposite. Yes, it needs to be the way that it's done every year, but what's important is that Adar's next to Nisan, not next to Tevet. And that gets you that it's the Adar Shani, it's the second Adar that's going to be important. Then the Gemara goes on, Bishlama Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yossi, Mistavar Tama, De'en Ma'avirin Al HaMitzvot. So it makes sense Rabbi Eliezer's opinion, because not only is that it should be next to Tevet, but maybe you should do everything in the first Adar, because E'en Ma'avirin Al HaMitzvot. As soon as you have an opportunity to do mitzvah, right? Adar Rishon rolls around, you should do that mitzvah right away. Elo Rabbi Shom Ben Gamliel, my time. So what they really want to understand is, why would Rabbi Shom Ben Gamliel want to say this? Right, and so the reason is Amar Reftavi. Reftavi says because the idea of putting these two geulas next to each other, the geula of Purim and then the geula of Nisan, that's just kind of the way it needs to be, you know. Um, and I was, uh, you know, and I was, uh, I was thinking about that, and then, um, you know, there's something very nice about that, right? And I think there's something, and that is ultimately how we do our calendar today too. That sort of starting from that period of Purim, it's basically like a season of redemption, right? We have these two very happy holidays, being saved on Purim and then being saved with Yitziat Mitzrayim. And so I think it's interesting, you know, sort of to have a reason 
that involves sort of like, what do you, what emotion do you want to evoke uh, with these holidays? And that there's a purpose, there's an emotional piece of what we want to people to feel and to experience by putting these two holidays together. Um, I think there's something very powerful in that. Yeah, I mean, it's really setting the stage of like how we're supposed to emotionally relate to these holidays. And I agree with you. And so, and again, I think also because Nissan, Pesach is set. It has to be, Arab Pesach is the 14th of Nissan. The 15th, you know, has to be, um, you know, the 15th has to be, uh, uh, you know, the first day of Pesach. Here, you're sort of dealing with like two rabbinic things. It's a rabbinic holiday. And also we have tremendous power of like, how we get to be Makadesh each month. And so when you sort of have those two playing together, there's a lot of flexibility with either opinion, whether you want to say it has to be other Rishon, whether you have to say it has to be other Shani, but it gives you a lot of flexibility in choosing how and when do you want this holiday to be celebrated. And so therefore, you know, the second opinion of saying it has to be other Shani is like, okay, so let's make it that it's sort of a season of Geula as opposed to sticking it in other Rishon. Right. Um, I think also there's a great deal of confusion, right? Because when we have a leap year, I mean, we've talked about this before, I'm sure, right? That when you think of a leap year, you think it comes after, but it comes before. And the idea, this is two separate thoughts, I guess, that um, the idea that there's a prescription for how you're supposed to feel in any given time is a little bit difficult, right? Meaning there's the expectation that you're going to, what, be happy. You know, it, usually when you're told, go be happy, it doesn't work, right? So yet there's an expectation that here you do all these things, it's going to work. Like now now we're going to celebrate with joy, not just celebrate through actions, right? But also with the emotion. Um, I think it bears further thought. I always yes, think it bears absolutely. further thought. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.